You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A lot of women are reluctant to have that litigation, that fight, and they're reluctant to go into court because they think that it costs more. It doesn't necessarily cost more. Sometimes we meet people who have been in collaboration or mediation, and there's been a fortune spent and nothing's happened. So I think that they need to understand the assets and they need to get their fair share and they need to do whatever they need to do to get there. You probably have a solid plan for retirement, but you still might be wondering, did I miss something? Is there something more I can do right now to secure my future? It is time to find out. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me on Her Money. If the past year has taught us anything, It's that the economy touches every aspect of our lives. Inflation, rising interest rates, layoffs, these are not just financial issues. The markets can also impact our mental health, our physical health, and our relationships. And any problems in our personal lives can get even more difficult once the stress of finances gets involved. That has certainly been the case with divorce. I don't have to tell you that divorce is complicated and expensive, but recently those expenses have just been magnified by inflation. The last update to the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, shows that the cost of legal services is up 6% from a year ago, which means you might be paying hundreds or even thousands of dollars more in attorney's fees. Dips in the stock market can also make divide up investment accounts more contentious and with a still tight housing market and mortgage rates that are just about double what they were a year ago, it can feel like fights over the family home have no winner. The spouse who keeps the house might have to refi at a much higher interest rate and the spouse who moves will face sky high rent and home prices. All of this means that if you are going through a divorce or you think you might be soon, you got to get even more strategic about protecting your finances, especially considering that women have historically been at a disadvantage after marriages end. Women, on average, experience a 27% decline in their standards of living post-divorce, while men actually see their standards of living rise by 10%. You can thank the gender wage gap for that and the fact that women still take on the majority of childcare responsibilities. But as stressful as divorce is, you do not have to go through it alone. All of us here at Her Money are here for you. I'm here for you. I have been there, done that, never want to do it again. But Lisa Ziderman, who is the managing partner at Miller Ziderman, which is a New York-based family law firm, is also here for you. Lisa's a matrimonial attorney, a certified financial litigator, a certified divorce financial analyst, and she specializes in prenups, postnups, custody agreements, and complex financial divorce agreements. She is here to help us today with everything that we need to know about keeping our money and our futures safe and secure. Lisa, I'm so glad to have you here. So glad to be here, Jean, and to be discussing these really important issues. 
Let me just say thank you for all that you do to help women and families through a really, really tough time. And I know as part of your work, you get a very intimate look into people's lives and you probably learn things about your clients that their partners, their best friends, their parents may not even know. Is there anything surprising that you've learned about how people, how women in particular, approach their marriages when it comes to their money? So it's interesting because I have a number of cases right now where I represent stay-at-home moms and those women are really facing, you know, through divorce, incredible stress because their lifestyle, to your point, is likely to be somewhat diminished. And most importantly, it will be diminished because they've been out of the workforce for so long. And unfortunately, the court system is not as kind as we wish it would be to women in terms of spousal support and even child support. And they are finding that they cannot make up those years that they've been out of the workforce where their spouses have actually been in the workforce and moving up the corporate ladder and you know they're getting their salary increases, bonuses, deferred compensation every year. And now our clients are first entering the workforce after perhaps 20 years, 22 years, 25 years. And they are not looking at a pretty picture. Yes, the assets can get divided and yes, there's going to be some spousal support But the problem is that it can't make up that lost time. And I think that what I find a little bit surprising is that they haven't thought about that as they're going through their marriage, raising their children. What could happen if we get divorced? I know that divorce is different in different states. Is this something that you've noticed via the court's over the last decade or so? I mean, it seems that what you're saying is that courts are not being as generous with women who are not the breadwinners. I think that that's 100% true. I would say in the last 10 years, and maybe because there are, frankly, a lot of people in the court system who are the breadwinners, who are female, who are judges. And so as we get more female judges and referees, et cetera, we are seeing perhaps a little bit less sympathy and empathy for women who have decided that they're going to stay home and raise their children. And that this deal essentially that these women have entered into, whereby I'm gonna stay home and raise the children and I'm gonna support you in your career while you move up that ladder, that doesn't really work as well because they're not rewarded at the end for long time maintenance or given the new statutory formulas for maintenance that is sufficient to cover their lifestyles in many cases. So let's get into the details of money and divorce with the intention of protecting some of our listeners who may be thinking that this is a path that they are likely headed down, or even those listeners who have absolutely no intention of heading down that path, because I know that things can just come around and surprise you when you're not ready for it. Can we go through the different stages of divorce and what women should be thinking about financially at at each stage before the divorce comes up, while it's in process and after. So let's start with before. Let's say you are, let's say you're not even married yet. Let's say you're engaged. The relationship is great. What steps do you take before you even walk down the aisle to protect yourself? 
So I think one of the first steps to take is just sit down with your your future spouse and to have a conversation about how you're going to deal with your money and what your each of your assets and your liabilities are, including things like school loans and credit card debt and you know business assets, et cetera, and potential inheritances. And then perhaps to come up with drafting a prenuptial agreement. And we do recommend that. So more and more I see prenups, for example, where they literally will say, you know, I'll keep my money, you keep your earnings, and I'll keep my assets and you keep your assets. And I was just speaking to another attorney in another state, and they said they were seeing the same exact trend in terms of prenuptial agreements. And that may not be okay for a lot of people because they are used to being raised in a family perhaps where everyone pooled their money and their resources and there were a lot of joint accounts. But I think the fact that we're having those conversations before we get married and then knowing what we're going to get into, that's really important at this point because then you know that, do I need to go into the workforce? If I'm having children, what's going to happen? Should I be entering into a postnuptial agreement at some point later, which we can talk about if it hasn't provided me with the type of support that I might need if I'm leaving the workforce? But I think these contractual agreements are very important. And remember, they can be renegotiated during the marriage. Well, I was just thinking, you keep your assets, I keep my assets. That all sounds great until you want to buy a house or have a baby or, you know, work toward a goal that's a a shared goal. Do these sorts of prenups then just get renegotiated? And what if you decide when you have that baby or you have a child who needs you to be at home for whatever reason, or you want to be at home, one of you, is that the point where you go back in and just throw it out and do it again? So you might do that. You might have a sunset clause, for example, which means that the prenup becomes null and void at a certain point in your marriage. Maybe it's going to become null and void if you have children. Maybe it'll be null and void when you're married for 25 years. That's one way to do it. You also could go back and modify the prenup when you get to a different point, or you can enter into a postnup, depending upon which state you're in, because sometimes certain states you can't actually have postnuptial agreements, or they may not be as enforceable. New York State recognizes postnuptial agreements and certainly enforces postnuptial agreements if they're signed and entered into properly. So the answer is yes. When we actually draft a post-up, we try to anticipate many of the things that you're talking about. So if we're going to buy a marital residence, what is the source of the funds going to be? How will we divide that marital residence in the event of a divorce? Will there be certain what we call separate property credits given to the person who might have had an inheritance, for example, and put that money in? If there are children, is there going to be a parenting agreement that they're going to enter into before someone must vacate the marital residence? Are we just going to sell it? Believe it or not, we actually anticipate those issues in a prenuptial agreement because we see them all the time and we see bad prenuptial agreements too when people come to us and they're getting divorced and they had another attorney, frankly, draft their prenuptial agreement and they are really out of luck in many of these instances. So I think that All of these things can be provided for in a prenuptial agreement, and obviously it can be amended as you go along. Many times people, particularly women, will come to me and say, you know, I really want to get married, and he's not going to give me anything. 
and it's all family money or he just won't give me anything. And then I'll, of course, advise, well, we shouldn't enter into this prenuptial agreement and maybe you want to rethink some of this, etc. But I will tell you, nine times out of 10, they sign the prenup. And the problem that they have is it's a bad prenup. So I think one of the reasons that we have so many bad prenups is because we don't know how to talk about money, right? These can be very, very thorny conversations, even between two people who love each other, right? Your spouse-to-be might worry that you're not committed to marriage or they think that you're already contemplating divorce. How do you advise people to approach the idea of the prenup without unintentionally offending their partner? And how do you advise them to approach a prenup that's not a particularly good deal? Okay, so first question first. I think if you love someone, you want to provide for that person. And I think that you also want to make that person feel safe and secure. And so I think there needs to be two people who sit down and have a conversation about what is going to make both of them feel safe and secure in this marriage. Because if there's too much overreaching, then it's likely not going to be a good feeling as they're going down the aisle or thereafter. So that's very important. And I think also giving people a heads up very early on when you're getting engaged, when you're engaged, as opposed to handing somebody a prenuptial agreement a month in advance or even weeks in advance or days in advance, we've seen it all, that is a bad way to approach a prenuptial agreement. This should be an ongoing conversation that you're having. And I even think as you're dating and getting serious about somebody, this might be an ongoing conversation that you have so that it's not sprung on the person. Yeah. I mean, I'm married for the second time and my listeners know my husband and I have a prenup. We knew kind of all along that we would have a prenup because we both have kids from prior marriages. We both had responsibilities. He came into the marriage with more money than I had, although I was out earning him at that point. So, you know, it was a balance of power that was shifting and we tried to account for all of those. I love what you said about safety and security because when I wrote my book, Women With Money, and I asked hundreds of women what they wanted from their money, safety and security were way, you know, they're at the top of the list. They're always at the top of the list, especially for women. And so I think aiming for that feeling is a really good thing to do. But you said you see bad prenups all the time. So what are the hallmarks of a bad prenup and how do you fight them? So a bad prenup, the hallmarks I would say is that someone has, you know, 98 percent of the assets, literally a hundred percent of the assets. And the other person may get a certain amount of child support, maybe no alimony or spousal support because they literally have waived it. And so they are looking at the diminishing of a lifestyle. They may have had several homes. They may have had, you know, one great home. Their children had been involved in activities. They vacationed and dined out and did all of those things. And unfortunately, due to the fact that they signed this prenup, they won't be able to do any of those things because the prenup is so one-sided. Now, what do you do? If it's so one-sided and it becomes unconscionable, meaning it shocks the conscience, 
then yes, could you try to set it aside? Yes, but there is definitely law that favors people entering into these contracts. And so it is a very bumpy road to try to set aside a prenuptial agreement. And the time to really have dealt with all of this is during the negotiation. And that means taking stamina. And it also, I think, means believing in your relationship and the fact that you can have the power to negotiate. We talk about negotiating for salaries all the time. I mean, it's much the same thing. You're valuing yourself. You're thinking about what you need and what you're worth and what you're bringing to the table and acknowledging that even if that's not cash, it's also not nothing. That's 100% correct. And I think what happens is people particularly people who end up having these prenups come to them a month in advance. And sometimes they are sitting literally, I think, in a lawyer's desk, not because the lawyer hasn't sent it out because they are overworked or overburdened. They haven't sent it out intentionally because this is a negotiation strategy, not to send it out until those few weeks before the wedding when the invitations have been sent, the acceptances have been given, you've got your RSVPs, your venue is booked, your parents are flying in. I mean, we have seen it all. We have literally had them signed the day of the rehearsal dinner. So if that is what is happening, then I think you might need to say, maybe we need to move the wedding. I know that's painful for people to do, but sometimes they need that time to be able to have this conversation. You know, you talk about transparency. Most of these prenups, people don't even get to see the financials because they are hit with the prenups in such a short amount of time to sign that they don't get to verify the the financials of each of the parties. Another issue, right, for people. So that transparency is so important. You mentioned postnups. Postnups are prenups that happen after you're married, essentially. You are laying out the rules, financial and otherwise, of how this marriage will operate as if it was a business. Are they just as effective and enforceable as prenups? I mean, there, you said there are some state-by-state differences. Yeah, so there are state-by-state differences. In New York, they're enforceable. In some states, they are not. And so you have to actually consult with an attorney in your own state and make sure what's enforceable and what is not enforceable. And perhaps you could actually do what's also called a modification or an amendment to the prenuptial agreement. Maybe that would be enforceable in your particular state. So you definitely want to consult with an attorney who is well-versed in the law of the particular state that you reside in. And in terms of, it is a new negotiation for sure. And it, things may have changed or things that you didn't think of, or maybe one of you is out earning the other, or one of you has decided to stay home, or maybe you have a child who has special challenges and one of you needs to stay home. These are all reasons that people enter into postnuptial agreements. There is a word of caution about it. You need to be careful when you're entering into this postnuptial agreement to realize that if it's going to be enforceable, that tomorrow you could also get divorced. And so you really need to make sure that you're going to be satisfied with the provisions of the postnuptial agreement in the event of a divorce, because it also sometimes is used as a vehicle to get more on someone's side of the table when they're saying, yes, we want to enhance the marriage. We love you. We want to be together. And they're thinking, really, I'm going to get a divorce very shortly. And this is going to set me up really well. 
So there is definitely that caveat that I would say people need to be careful about entering into these postnuptial agreements and understanding the reasons for it. Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit, Lisa. Let's say you are now at the point where you think that divorce is on the horizon. I mean, interestingly, more often than not these days, it's women who are filing for divorce first. A 2015 study looking at women in heterosexual marriages found that women initiate nearly 70% of divorces in America. Surprising to you or no? No, it's not surprising. I think that women get to a point where they want out and they are willing to initiate. And I think that many of them have waited a certain amount of time for their children, for example, to go off to college. They've been waiting and thinking about it. So I don't find it actually surprising that they've initiated. So what is the first step to take, whether you are the initiator or whether your partner has initiated a divorce? What do you need to do to get yourself in the best possible position? So a couple of things, build your team. Okay, so that would mean finding an attorney that is going to have your back, find a great therapist. It's always helpful during a divorce, frankly, to have somebody else to speak to other than your attorney, because as you spoke about earlier, attorney's fees are expensive. You want to have somebody to bounce off the emotional issues. Make sure that you have an accountant that you can work with. Your attorney may have a referral for you. Start to gather documents, tax returns, bank statements, credit card statements. Start to try to understand your finances to the best of your ability. You may not have control of the accounts. You may not have the passwords. You may not have a lot of the information. But whatever information you can gather is very helpful when you meet with your attorney. Of course, it's great when I have a client who comes in and she literally has a spreadsheet and she knows exactly what all the assets are, but that's the rare case. Most people come to me and they don't know what all the assets are. So you need an attorney who's going to do their due diligence and you need to make sure that that's the person you're choosing so that you are actually identifying all the assets. It's so funny when we first started running our Finance Fix financial coaching program, we found that a lot of the women who were joining were either in the process, contemplating, or had just come through divorce. And they really, I guess, to this idea of feeling safe and secure, wanted to get a grip on where all the money was, you know? And part of the process that we go through in Finance Fix is really helpful and we call it getting dirty with your data, but it's very helpful in figuring out what's where and what's meaningful and what's not. And it can be a little bit tedious if you're doing it on your own. So I think you're right. A good accountant and a good attorney are paramount. When we come back, we're going to keep going with this conversation and we're going to talk about how these choices that you make now as you're going through divorce impact your eventual retirement, which is a particular issue since more and more people are going through divorce later in life. And look, we know retirement is a big deal. And since women live longer, we have to make our savings last longer. And that means we have to plan smarter. If you visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney, you can schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor. And this is one great way to get a fresh look at your finances. You'll work with experts to create a plan to help build, grow, protect, and preserve your wealth for the retirement of your dreams. 
It's your money and you have to make it count. That is especially true if you're going through a divorce. You can get started at planefe.com slash hermoney. I am talking with Lisa Ziderman, Certified Divorce Financial Analyst, Managing Partner at Miller Ziderman in New York. So when we talk about divorces, not all of them are amicable. In fact, I would guess that most of them are probably not amicable. Sometimes your partner doesn't want to cooperate with you financially. They may even try to work against you by hiding documents or hiding assets. Have you seen this become more common in in the current economy? And how do you protect yourself in that situation? So I don't know if it's more common. We deal with complex financial litigation all the time. And people are consistently trying to hide their assets, you know, on the other side of the fence. So how do we make sure our clients are protected? First, we try to tell them to find every breadcrumb they can. And I always tell the story of the client who came to me and literally had pieces of paper, stickies, all sorts of notes that she found in the garbage. And she would literally collect those notes. And as a result, we probably found her five, five million dollars. That was just nowhere on statement, no financial statement, no account statements, money was in Turks and Caicos and escrow accounts, et cetera. Now, she was really cooperative and very good about getting us that information. And whenever she found something, she would give it to us. So that's one thing to do in terms of protecting yourself. And then, of course, being aware throughout your marriage of what the assets, the liabilities, all of that are. Because this doesn't happen overnight. You're not going to wake up in the morning and now you're going to be able to discover all your finances by yourself. You will need forensic accountants likely. You will need a very good divorce attorney. They will need to conduct discovery and probably depositions. And that's what we do to find the assets. Now, that's not an issue for people who don't have massive amounts of wealth typically, correct? When you say it's not an issue, it's not an issue in terms of the hiding of the money. No, I mean, in terms of bringing in the, like, at what level of assets do you think about bringing people like forensic accountants into the picture? I mean, that's another layer of expense. It is. So first of all, if there's some sort of a business, because that business may have a value and you may have a buyout interest in that business. So even though you're not titled on the business, you're entitled to a a portion of the equitable distribution of that business. So that's one place to do it. And the reason you would bring in a forensic accounting firm or a very good firm is because you have to figure out what are the personal expenses perhaps being paid from the business. Maybe that's a way to actually increase somebody's income and that may be a way to get more spousal support. It also may add value to the business. So there are reasons to do that. Somebody may have to go through the general ledgers of a business to do that. In terms of accounts, yeah. I mean, we as lawyers can certainly look at account statements. And if you were just splitting a 401k and a home and bank accounts, you're not going to need a forensic accountant. But when you get to, for example, deferred compensation, when you get to restricted stock units, when you're talking about values of businesses or limited partnership interests, and you're talking about sizable monies, you need to have a good team to do that because you're going to lose out if not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about gray divorce. Divorce after 50 is how it's defined, although I I think maybe it hits a lot of people these days even later. It can have a huge impact on a woman's retirement. One study from Bowling Green State University found 
older women who get divorced have their standard of living declined by 45% compared to 21% for older men, and many more older women live below the federal poverty line. For all of the reasons that you were listing at the top of the podcast, it is much harder for women at that point to rebuild their wealth, especially if they've already retired. So any tips for people who are specifically going through divorce later in life? I think stamina is one thing that they must have. They have to have the stamina to stay in essentially the dispute or the fight. This is not one of those situations, and I tell clients this all the time, you can't sit in the back of the car seat and ask me when we're gonna get there because the work needs to actually happen so that we can get you as much as you can because this may be your biggest opportunity to get as much money off the table as you can. You may never have the ability to earn this money. And that's just, it's a fact for a lot of women because they have been out of the workforce. And so it's really important that they try to make sure that they get as great a division of the assets as possible, that they make sure that the assets aren't being spent down during the divorce litigation to the extent that they can, that they get into court if they need to, that they are asking for support packages as they go along. A lot of women are reluctant to have that litigation, that fight, and they're reluctant to go into court because they think that it costs more. It doesn't necessarily cost more. Sometimes we meet people who have been in collaboration or mediation and there's been a fortune spent and nothing's happened. So I think that they need to understand the assets and they need to get their fair share and they need to do whatever they need to do to get there. Are you seeing more older people take a look at the finances and just say, you know what, we're just going to live separate lives. Divorce is expensive. We're going to lose out if we actually go down this road. We can go on. We can have other relationships, but we're not going to do this legally. I don't see a lot of that, frankly, maybe because remember, I'm a divorce attorney, so I'm not going to see those people. I'm sure that there are people out there who have made those decisions. I do sometimes, I will say this, I sometimes see people who have lived apart for a very long time. And those divorces are much more complex because somebody finally decides they're going to get divorced, they've re-met somebody, or they want to now get remarried or something happens. And then the question is, What's the division of assets? Because it may no longer be a 50-50 division. Just because you live separate and apart and you're still married doesn't mean that you get that 50-50 division that you might have gotten in a long marriage with children, et cetera, because somebody may have been supporting you for a long time. You know, somebody may have been earning monies without you contributing to that. You may no longer be cooking the meals or going to the dry cleaners for that person. So I think that that complicates things. Unless you're entering again into that postnuptial agreement, I think that becomes very complicated. Let's turn to after the divorce, which is a time when a lot of women do struggle financially. What's the best way to right your ship and move your life forward? So I think two things. Number one, you should get a great financial advisor. I think that's really important. And I would personally recommend that people do that as part of the team approach as they're going through the divorce. Get yourself a financial advisor who can help you, who can look at what it's going to take for you to get to you know, age 95, for example. What support do you need? Should you be selling the family home or keeping the family home? All of those types of issues. And then I would say after the divorce, 
you also, or even during the divorce, start to work with someone who can help you in terms of building some sort of a career. So some sort of a coach in terms of career, because at the end of the day, that is going to make a big difference if you're out in the workforce. Even if you're not earning big bucks, you can earn something and that will help defray some of the costs and also some of the monies that you would otherwise be taking from your retirement, you can be earning to pay for those expenses now. Yeah, it gives you a chance to maybe put off taking Social Security and to put off drawing money out of those IRAs and 401ks, which in and of itself is a huge advantage. All right, last question, Lisa. Divorce is a heavy topic. This has been a heavy podcast. It's easy to feel stuck in a negative place emotionally. Do you have any words of encouragement for women who are listening who just might be going through it right now? I do. I think that women, you know, I have a lot of clients who we've served that I now speak to or have become friendly with, et cetera. And they are on the other side and they often say to me that it's as if a black cloud has been lifted off of them, that they feel so free and so happy and can move on with their lives. So I would say to those people who are really fearful about doing it, it's a life changer. And literally people say, you've saved my life. Yeah. Yeah, that must be very, very nice to hear. Where can our listeners find more about you? So they can actually go to my website, which is a blog also, lisaziderman.com. And they can email me at lz at mzw-law.com. Or they can call for a consultation at 914-455-1000. I don't think anybody's ever given a phone number on our show before. So you're the first and it's been six years. Good for you. Lisa, thank you so, so very much for this important conversation. I think our listeners are going to get a ton out of it. Thank you. Before we dive into our mailbag, just a reminder, Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that measures success by empowering members to achieve their financial goals. In other words, to use their money to get what they want out of life. The credit union wants your banking experience to be authentic and friendly, which is why its products let you bank in confidence and its caring service gives you peace of mind. See if you're eligible for what BCU has to offer at bcu.org. Her money's Catherine Tuggle is in the house. She is joining me as always for our mailbag. Catherine, so good to see you. You too, Jean. You too, Jean. And happy January. Happy January to you too. I um, I'm glad to see you back in New York. You had a bit of a, a bit of a travel nightmare with many of the people in this country. Oh my gosh. Well, it was crazy because we flew to Alabama to spend time with my family and I felt so clever. We were supposed to fly back to New York on like January 4th and everything was still crazy. We got to the airport and they were like, yeah, we don't have a plane. So <laughs> we're like, okay, small problem. Well. Okay. Yeah. But they did give us a $15 voucher for food. So basically we bought like one potato chip and then eventually got home like four days later. Oh my gosh. You poor thing. No, it was fine. You know, I think if you're with family, you're in the best possible situation. Like thankfully we could just go back to my folks' house. Yeah. 
yeah, no, that makes life a lot, a lot easier. I've been definitely feeling for all the people who got stranded in airports and got stranded in hotels and were not able to make it home for the holidays. So not a lot of fun. We're hoping for better travel things in 2023. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I think, I think everyone will have their act together after some of the snafus. I think Southwest is definitely going to have to step it up in the realm of customer service. Yeah. My son's girlfriend, Emily, sadly lost her grandfather a few days after the whole Southwest debacle cleared. And she flew Southwest from California to get back to her family in Florida and went off without a hitch. She said everybody was very, very polite and really bending over backwards to make the difference. But I think it's going to take months and months of that. Yeah, I completely agree. Let's dig into the mailbag. Our question today comes to us from an anonymous listener. She writes, hello, Jean and Catherine. I've been meaning to follow up on your amazing advice to me last year. I'd asked for help with my family's real estate holdings, whether and when we should consider selling and rolling the proceeds into a more hands-off and dependable vehicle for retirement. Following your advice, I reached out to three financial advisors I found using your suggested databases, zeroing in on advisors with backgrounds that were relevant to my specific needs with real estate, small businesses, and taxes. I met with each of them over Zoom. Many of the questions I asked them were based on information I had heard in your podcast. This helped me evaluate each advisor in terms of how they'd be able to help with my specific needs and how we'd fit on a personal level. They were all terrific, but one of them stood out in particular. I'm happy to say that after months of filling out surveys, uploading documents, and corresponding, we are well on our way to developing a solid short and long-term financial plan for my family and our business. This is something that has been hanging over my head for many years, and without your help and encouragement, I don't think I would have been able to move the needle on this at all. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, well, I'm so glad. I love it when people tell us how it went, right? We don't often get that. So thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for letting us know. I'm, I'm really glad that it has gone well and that you feel that things are moving in the right direction. Yeah, this makes me so happy. So she has another question. She says, if I may, I'd like to present another quandary, which I've been ruminating over. I'd appreciate your advice. And I think this may also be of interest to your listeners. With a 30-year marriage and three grown kids, my family has accumulated a lot of stuff. We've cleared out and decluttered a lot of it over the past few years, but we haven't been able to figure out what to do with objects which may be of value, which we're not sure we need or want to hold on to for sentimental reasons. I'm talking about things like family jewelry that grandparents have handed down to our kids, but we know they'll never wear, a few paintings that we've acquired over the years, and inherited silver and other potentially valuable collectibles. My question is twofold. First, I guess I need to find an appraiser to figure out the value of each object. Can you point me to any organizations that could help with this? Then the harder part how to decide what to hold on to and what to sell or donate, taking into account both monetary and sentimental value. I'm afraid the second step may be complicated by the fact that one of us tends to hold on to things while the other likes to live a little leaner. I know you'll have words of wisdom on this emotional piece. Thank you so much for all you do. Your podcast has provided me with so much guidance and community over these past many years. So I think this question is so interesting for so many reasons. When my husband and I moved 
recently. And then with the loss of my stepdad, I feel like we've gone through an awful lot of decluttering. The first thing we did, and this is not a direct answer to your question, but I would like to suggest it to anyone who feels like they have too much stuff. We would have garbage pickup at our home on Thursdays in Westchester County when we were living in New York. And so on Wednesday nights, we challenged ourselves to get rid of three things. And we did this for about a year. We would go down to the basement. We would find things that were just carpet remnants and things that we thought we were never going to use. If they had value or if they were furniture-like and we thought people might want to take them, we would put them on the curb a little early and people would always drive by and pick them up. But we managed to declutter an awful lot just by going through that simple process of not challenging ourselves to do it all at once over an extended period of time. As far as the value of the objects, my experience has typically been they do not have as much value as you think. But there is a National Association of Appraisers, which you can go through. I used this association years ago to find appraisers to help me do segments for the Today Show. You can find an appraiser in your area ask them to come by. Often you're going to need different appraisers for different types of objects. So you'll need somebody different for the jewelry than you will for the art. There are also jewelry websites where you can sell old jewelry, places like Circa.com that can sometimes be helpful with that. Although often the value of jewelry is in the metal itself. It's not necessarily in the piece because if the piece is outdated, it's possible that people are not going to pay you for the design of the piece. But by all means, get the stuff appraised. And then I would try, when it comes to your back and forth between the one of you who likes to hold on to things and the one of you who doesn't want to hold on to things, I might try to come up with some space in my house that is acceptable to be used for these things, a a finite amount of space, and allow your partner a little bit more free reign to hold on to those things. If there are things that you know that the kids want, then by all means, give them to the kids now. Let the kids enjoy them. Let the kids put them up on the walls. My mother has gone through this process with a lot of my stepdad's paintings. Bob was an artist and painted a lot. And we all have Bob paintings on our walls. And it makes us really happy to look at those paintings and think about Bob. And if there are things that you know that your kids would enjoy using in their everyday lives, I'm a big fan of giving them now and not holding on to them until death. But I think starting this kind of a discussion, going back and forth, you'll get to a place where you're comfortable and I would approach it as a process. I wouldn't approach it as a one in done, but I always feel a little bit better and a little bit lighter when I have less stuff rather than more stuff. And I'm hoping that you're going to feel exactly the same way. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think lighter is just a more liberating, emotional feeling to have overall. 
the less stuff that you can have. I know that my mom had so much peace when we got rid of some of my grandmother's stuff. And we, we went through it very methodically. We went through it like very each piece. Like I would hold something up and we would make a decision. So, you know, I actually look back on the time that we did that really fondly. So I, I think it could turn into a family activity, you know, where you maybe share some memories about each thing if you have them and get everybody involved. And that way you'll know everybody is comfortable with the decision being made. Very Marie Kondo, hold up each thing and make a decision, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. But I, I think it works. You don't feel as if you're just like, well, what was in that big box I donated? You know that you've been through every single thing. You've made a decision. You've made your peace with what that decision is. Yeah, absolutely. And just a note to our listeners, thank you so much for sending us your questions. We love them. We want more. And we want to know more about what you think about this podcast, which is why right now Her Money is conducting our annual podcast listener survey. So I'm just asking you, please take eight minutes. That's all it's going to take. Eight minutes to tell us how we're doing and what you want to see in 2023. You'll also get the chance to win some prizes, including $100 Amazon gift cards, Her Money books, and more. Just click the link in the episode description. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you, Jean, as always. And in today's Thrive, four things everyone needs to know about taxes for 2023. Every tax season, it's just a little bit different from the last, and there were quite a few changes in 2022. April is going to be here before you know it, and so the last thing you want to do is procrastinate, but you don't have to stress. At HerMoney.com, we've got a list of the top 10 things you should know about filing your taxes this year, and I'm going to give you a sneak peek of that list right now. Number one, you might have heard that the IRS is requiring people to report payments on apps like Venmo and PayPal that were $600 or more. They've now put that rule on pause for a year, so you don't have to worry about most of those payments. But if you're a gig worker who uses those apps to make money and you earned over 20 grand, you do have to report that income. Second, you should know you're probably going to get a smaller refund. That's because some tax credits are being rolled back to 2019 levels. For example, people who received $3,600 per dependent last year may get $2,000 per dependent this year. Taxpayers with no kids who might have gotten $1,500 from the earned income tax credit last year should know now that credit is $500. Next, there's also been a tax change for electronic vehicles. You could qualify for a new credit if you bought an electric car after August 16th of 2022. Find out if your car is eligible by entering your VIN number on the Department of Energy's website. Finally, you just want to make sure you have all the right documents on hand. You'll need your social security number or your tax ID number, as well as the numbers of anyone listed on your taxes. You're also going to need all the W-2s and 1099s for income you've received, documents supporting any tax credits and deductions, your adjusted gross income for 2021, and your bank account and routing number so that you can get your refund as quickly as possible. 
If you've got more questions about your taxes, check out the rest of our list at hermoney.com, and we'll have a lot more tax content coming your way over the next couple of months, so stay tuned. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Lisa Ziderman for empowering all of us with the financial knowledge we need during a very trying time. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.